about a week since I did the last podcast. As I said, if I have nothing to say, I may go two months without doing any podcasts or I may do one a day for 10 days straight. It just depends what's on my mind, whether there's something to say that I think is worth talking about. A couple of notes just about me personally. I was going to the track three times a week and I was, I don't know exactly what I was training for. I didn't have a bet or anything like I did last time, but I was doing a, a 400 meter, a 300 meter, a 200 meter, and a 100 meter run, basically a full kilometer. And figured a kilometer is pretty short, not that hard on my uh, ankle, my joints. So I was doing a 400 meter, which is quarter mile in less than two minutes, which is not very fast. It's an eight minute mile pace. I'd usually end up at about 143, like a sub seven pace, but still for a quarter mile. Um, I was out of breath though, don't get me wrong, but um, it wasn't a killer. And then for the uh, 300, I would do it close to a six minute mile pace. For the 200, it'd be like a four and a half minute mile pace. And for the 100, it'd be a sub four minute mile pace. And I had done that for, I don't know, 10, 10 times I went to the track, three times a week for three and a half weeks. And then last week, last Wednesday, uh, I was running the 200, it was rainy out, track was a little slick. And I felt like a little twinge in my hamstring when I was almost about to finish, but I wanted to beat the time that I'm supposed to beat. So I pushed it. And about two steps later, I heard a loud, heard, felt a loud pop. And then all of a sudden I was hobbled and I couldn't finish running. So I limped back home and it wasn't that painful. I sprained my ankle a lot of times, as many of you know. And uh, when you sprain an ankle and tear the ligaments, it's extremely painful uh, this didn't really hurt. It was just a little bit painful, not much. And it felt a little weak and wobbly and a little bit of pain to walk on. And so I got home. I was fasting that day and I immediately ate two tins of sardines because I was hungry. And just on a side note, a friend of mine who's a, uh, a health coach, Caroline, I talked about her in the health podcast. She says she should have some sardines. I have good sardines. They're packed in water. Uh, olive oil packed sardines often have seed oils. They say olive oil, but it's cheap olive oil or seed oils. Um, I get the ones packed in water. That's a really good brand here. And I like the taste. I put a little hot sauce on them. But I, anyway, I, she said, keep those in your house because if you're fasting or intermittent fasting, you'll know if you really need to eat uh, or not based on whether you uh, take the sardines. So if you uh, have no interest in the sardines, but you want to eat, that means you're probably just eating just for pleasure. But if you're truly hungry, the sardines are going to start to look good. So anyway, I, have my, I eat my sardines. I take some fish oils for uh, omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatories. I drink some turmeric water at the uh, suggestion of one of our listeners. Ian, I don't want to say his last name because uh, I didn't get permission, but I don't want to dox the guy. But anyway, he's one of our listeners and he suggested, how about some turmeric? And he put a little pepper in there to make the turmeric more bioavailable. So I had some of that. It was a little swollen the next day, a little painful, not too bad, a little tight. And now it's a week later. I've been stretching a little. I walked up a hill, felt kind of weak, but uh, feels fine. But they say, you know, take a whole month off. Don't go back to the track for a month or six weeks till it really heals. So I don't think it's that bad, but uh, I will take a few weeks off and I don't want to uh, have a chronic problem. Anyway, so that's that. Hurt my hamstring. I'm an old man. I was trying to sprint and I, I it popped. I was like, pop. You hear about that? Like athletes do that. It happened to me. Never happened to me before. So it is what it is. Other things, you know, I've retired from RotoWire and I'm doing my own thing, as obviously you guys know from the podcast and from chrysalis.com. And I actually like a lot of my work goes into chrysalis.com, the uh, 
the site. I write a lot of articles. Check it out. If you uh, are only a podcast listener, you might find some of those interesting. I'm going to discuss some of the articles I've written in the last week uh, since the last podcast. But I've been writing and I've been doing a little baseball. I was trying to do draft champions leagues in the NFBC because you don't have to do free agent pickups. And part of my uh, retirement, I thought would be, you know, I don't really want to have to have an appointment every Sunday night and go through all the free agent pickups. And I just began to dread that and thought, well, I'll do some draft champions and get my baseball fixed from that. And, you know, the 50 round drafts where you draft anyone you're ever going to roster at the draft, then you just set lineups, which is a lot less time. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. But then Greg Ambrosius wrote me in. He offered me some beat Chris list leagues. I couldn't turn it down. So I did two of those. So, okay, well, the 12 team league is a little bit of fab. I'm not doing the main event too much work for fab, but you know what? I'm going to do a couple more draft champions leagues. I had some injuries to guys. I had drafted Fernando Tatis, my first pick. And so he's out for maybe half the year. So I thought I'll do another draft champions, $400 draft champions, and just kind of, you know, get my, my fix since I'm getting more into baseball. So I'm drafting this and these guys are taking forever to pick. I mean, just like every pick is the full two hours. We're getting like a round day, a round and a half a day. It's painful. And so I'm jonesing to draft. And then the process of this taking so long and researching the players between each pick is starting to get me really up on baseball. And I'm like, oh, I really like this guy. Oh man, he got taken a pick before me or I should have taken him last round. And then you start getting all these ideas of how to build a team and all of that. And I'm thinking, man, I should do the main event. The main event is the best contest but I don't want to deal with the fab. So of course, what do I do? I email Tim Schuler, RotoWire partner of mine, former RotoWire partner, good friend of mine. And he's like the man with the fab. Like he, he doesn't miss. He's diligent, goes through the league. He's up on it. He knows baseball. Perfect guy for the fab, but I know he's busy and we share another league and he shares leagues with Jeff. And so I don't know. So I email him. I say, Hey dude, I will buy the main event you chip in 500, I'll chip in 1250. We'll split it 50 50 because obviously the drafting is the fun part. The fab is the hell. So I had to give him a, an incentive. I said, What do you think? And he said, oh, I'm pretty busy. Let me think about it. And then I was like, You know what? I'm buying the league anyway. So if he wants it, he can have it. But otherwise, I'm going to do it myself and just grit through it. And then he emails me back this morning and, and said, Yeah, he's in. He didn't even know I had already bought the league. So now I got the fab handled, except for maybe one or two weeks where he's traveling, which is no problem. And then uh, I get this main event draft. So April 3rd, Saturday, 3 p.m., I'm drafting the main event. It is, of course, it's all the main events are tough leagues. Larry Schechter's in it. Larry Schechter, an odd fact about Larry Schechter. I won't dox him or me, but we have the same birthday. So that birthday, I'm pretty sure, is the winningest birthday in Pat Wars history. Because there's, unless there's, you know, a couple guys have the same birthday also, but we have the same birthday. So yeah, so I'm doing that main event. A couple other guys, Vlad Sedler's in it. Um, and there's this guy, Madani. I don't know his first name, but you know, everyone's like uh, tweeting at us like, oh, you know, I'm in a league with Vlad and Larry and Chris. But really the guy to worry about is this guy, Madani, uh, who killed us last year in the league I was in. So uh, he may be the best player in the league, but I'm confident. I'm still doing more homework and Schuler will give me his players too that he likes and I'll incorporate those into the draft. But excited, I'm doing the main event. And it's enjoyable. I want to focus on one other thing, though, because we're joking about it. Vlad's joking. We're all talking back and forth, excited to do a main event. And in the middle of it, some guy, I forget his name, whatever. It's not important. He's just some random, comes in and tries to like mock me saying, oh, you're, you know, at least one of the teams is drawing dead. And I wouldn't care because I say that to people too, except this guy's in my mentions like every few months 
coming in to try to dunk on me. I think it started when I mocked the outdoor mask wearers and it got, I guess, like in a certain segment of the fantasy baseball community, whatever, I guess it became okay for them, I guess, to dunk on me because of my, my wrong think, my whack takes, you know, my, my bad views. And fine, I can handle myself. Now I don't even have a, a, a company, so I can just go scorch earth on these dudes. They can't deter me from speaking. They're never going to deter me. And if they think it's okay to attack me, I'm going to point out that, you know, their behavior, like I did to this guy. But the, but the point is not this guy. Who cares? He's just some random Twitter mob member, basically, you know, trying to get clout. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter who he is. But I do want to say something because I want to just get really clear on what's happening. Like you say something that is heterodox to the narrative or dissenting from what you're supposed to think and say. And there's just a huge contingent of people that for reasons of clout, for reasons of just mean spiritedness, you know, they, they feel like, oh, here's someone I can be mean to and have license to and have people laugh and join me in this. There's something in human nature that likes to do that. Have a scapegoat, have somebody you can pile on. Somehow I became that guy for a bit because I was saying some stuff that, you know, was, was outside the narrative. And again, I can handle myself even more so now that I'm not affiliated. I mean, I can really, I can defend myself. I mean, nobody likes it. I don't like being attacked. But I never go into this guy's feed. I don't even know who this guy is. I, I literally don't know who he is except that he shows up in my feed. I don't go to other people and say, this thing you said, it's wrong. I need to go fight it. It's only them coming to me. And if they just DM'd me in private to tell me what an asshole I was, I would just block them or ignore them. But they're saying they're publicly trying to humiliate and mock you. They're, they're publicly, some of these guys went to my job when I had a job and tried to you know, stir up problems for me financially, you know, cut off my source of income. I just want to say, and I've said this before, but like how much of a scourge that is uh, to the discourse. I mean, people, people are just so desperate to belong, to show they're part of the tribe, to egg on other people, to say something nasty to somebody who you don't know and who is minding his own business, you know, leaving you, not bothering you at all. I saw another guy, no, and I'll just bring this up. I don't know him that well. I know him a little bit. The MLB moving averages guy, John Legaza, who I did his podcast last summer. I enjoyed it. I think he's a, a nice guy. And he mentioned something so benign. He just had an idea. I, I see his case. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it was whatever. It was an idea. He thought that because... Toronto, the city, apparently they won't let uh, unvaccinated players play there. Then, you know, star players like Aaron Judge and, you know, maybe like Anthony Rizzo will be out of the lineup for the Yankees when they go to Toronto. And that because it's the only city with that issue where the Jays can basically just like face teams at less than full strength. And that has, a, that's a competitive balance issue. And the, and the solution to that, in his opinion, was to have Toronto play somewhere in the U.S. where um, that wasn't the case. And everybody had the same, everybody was, was facing them with full rosters. That's a fair point. Some people, I think, fairly also argued back that, well, because Canada is another country and the U.S. still has vax test, testing requirements to enter, all of the Blue Jays have to be vaccinated. If they're not, they could even go to the U.S. So regardless of what you think of the policy, and it's obviously fucking stupid to have a policy for a vaccine that does not stop the spread. It's just asinine and players who obviously are in their prime and are healthy people uh, and most of whom have probably had it already. I mean, it's just an incredibly stupid policy, but regardless of what you think the policy is, 
it's a fair point that you say, well, if, if the Blue Jays would have to forego all their home games and play in another stadium just because, uh, just to avoid competitive imbalance, well, you know, that's pretty unfair because their whole team is basically exempt from signing unvaccinated players based on Canada. And I think John's point was like, well, that's Canada's problem and it's up to them to decide what they want. But, but MLB can't, you know, decide what the U.S.'s policy is for immigration or whatever. They can only decide what their policy is and they can ensure competitive balance by, by doing that. Something like that. I'm probably not giving him the full due for his point. But I see both sides. I see why um, it is a competitive balance issue. I see also why if you're a Blue Jays fan, you're like, look, we have a huge issue that we can't even go to the U.S. without that. So there's no point in making, making the Blue Jays play in some other stadium. But for just that sort of benign take that this is what should happen, people were destroying him in the comments. I mean, absolutely destroying him. And he wasn't even saying that the policy was bad. I'm saying the policy is stupid. It is fucking stupid. It's obviously stupid. He wasn't even saying that. He was saying he hopes the players get vaccinated. But given the situation, here's what MLB should do. That's all he was saying. And they were destroying him for this in the comments. And there's no basis. I mean, nobody in the comments even pointed out by the way, the vaccine doesn't stop the spread. What the fuck are you even talking about? Nobody even pointed that out. So it was just beyond stupid. The whole episode was stupid, but it was just how they came after him. And he's a pretty nice guy. I'm a little bit more caustic when people come after me. He's like a nice guy and they're coming after him. And it just made me realize like this mean girl shit on Twitter. And I don't know why it's fantasy baseball. Journalism is the worst. Um, there's a, Fred, a Freddie DeBoer quote. I should probably find it and read it because it's a great quote about the little bitches in journalism, like how they really just want to be esteemed by other journalists and looked up to and ter are terrified of being mocked by other ones. This is just like the fantasy baseball industry. These people, these little climbers hoping to get some clout. It's so embarrassing. Maybe it's just the age that they're at. Maybe they're sort of a high school mentality. They're still in their 20s, maybe some of them, and they haven't really grown out of that yet. But the, the overarching point is, you know, I, I dispensed with that dude and, you know, told him off, whatever. I've fine with it. But it's more like, I, I almost want to go further, not for, for this particular guy. He's not even the worst of them. He's just, he's too, he's not even clever enough to be the worst of them. But the idea, this whole mentality of, oh, these are the people I can be nasty to publicly because they have a disagreement with me, even though they're not even, they're minding their own business. They have nothing to do with me. And this whole, let's pile on anybody who has a different view that people we disagree with and not even identify what the disagreement is. Not say, hey, I totally disagree with this. That's cool. You want to have a debate about something? You want to actually talk about a specific thing that you think I've said that's mistaken in my feed? You want to come into my feed and you want to debate something? That's fine. That's probably good for me, right? I mean, why shouldn't I have some rational pushback if something I'm saying is mistaken? That's good. But just attacking someone's character, calling them an idiot, coming in every three months to do some mocking dunk without any substance behind it, that's just weak shit. And it's a scourge for the discourse. It makes the discourse worse. I know people who are afraid to speak because they know that there's going to be a pile on. And, you know, I, I had a whole post a couple of weeks ago about tweets that I drafted and didn't send. And then I put them in an article and posted them because I'm like, I'm not going to self-censor. I do self-censor still because you, you sometimes are like, it's not worth it. But I try to, every time I draft a tweet that I end up deciding not to send, I save it. I'm going to post it in another article just so I know that I'm getting my ideas out there because your ideas are all you got. I mean, you, you know, as a creative person, it's your ideas, your stories, your, what you have to say. That's what you have. That's the substance of your livelihood. 
and you know, so, so much as it is, your whole life is really just ideas and executing on those ideas. And to the extent that we're in a climate where someone's deterring you for having them, or there's a, a penalty for just expressing ideas. I'm not talking about David Frum writing ideas that fomented the Iraq war. I think public uh, people in public positions, policymakers, they're not sort of minding their own business when they're implementing policies that affect everybody. I think that's a little bit different. But individuals with ideas, they should be debated. And I think people should feel comfortable taking on someone's ideas, trying to debate or refute them or disagree with them strongly. I think that's fine. But this sort of uh, character attack, it's fucking gross. And I want people to see the people who are doing it for what they are. It's fucking gross. It's loser shit. It's weak shit. It's pathetic. Have an idea. Make a good case. Make a point that's so persuasive that other people are like, wow, that idea that I thought was good from this other guy, I don't agree with it anymore because this guy persuaded me. Do that if, if you feel strongly about it. But this kind of mindless attack of people with heterodox views, fuck you, okay? Seriously. And, and, and not the guy, forget it. He's not even, don't pile on him. Don't, who cares? He's, he, he, it's beneath your, it's not even worth your attention. I'm saying in general, like know who these guys are. I mean, when these guys come after people with character attacks, know who they are, do what you want. You want to fucking get them, get them. But what I'm just saying is this shit is a fucking scourge. I want to do what I can in my power to enact a cost when, when people are mean spirited, add nothing to the discussion, purely assassinate character and don't even engage in any sort of constructive exchange of ideas. To me, that's just so weak. So just want to say that we, we, we should be very tolerant of everything except intolerance, because if you let intolerant people control the discourse, there is no discourse. There is no tolerance. So uh, see it for what it is. All right. So these columns I wrote, I wanted to talk about because it's also on my mind and it's, it's interesting stuff. So one of them is a dilemma I have. I always tell people, and, and I really believe this, that you should never settle for a bad deal. Even if you're the one who needs the deal, don't settle. So a lot of people are like, oh, I, my job, I, they're making me do this horrible thing. And I really despise that they don't respect me. They don't treat me with dignity, but I can't leave. I can't quit because I need the job. And I really believe my heart of hearts that if there's a bad deal, even if you need it, even if there's no alternative that you can see right now, if it feels really wrong and unfair, don't take it. Just quit. Um, never accept the unacceptable. The options that you think you have now are not the only options. You may not know what the actual options are, but without quitting, you'll never find out. Um, some people think I can't speak out. If I speak out, then people in my social and professional circles, they'll shun me. They'll, I'll lose my job. I'll lose. And I think, well, if it's really something important to you, um, you might need to find a place where you're valued. You might need to find social circles where people are really your friends and they accept you. And maybe you won't. I mean, maybe you'll lose your job. Maybe you'll be broken, alone, homeless. But it seems like a risk everyone has to run. You have to be yourself at some point. You know, you can compromise on little things, where to go to dinner, or you want to go to Chinese food, they want to go to Italian. You can go to Italian, that's okay. But selling your soul in the large matters is, it's always wrong. It's always bad for you. I really believe that. But I have my own problem with this. I wrote about it. For the last 20 years, I've just sort of sucked it up ever since 9-11 and gone on airplanes to travel, even though I feel like the experience of going to the airport, and I wrote a whole thing about this before, five years ago, 
is so dehumanizing and so degrading that it, it, I just dread it. I just have a feeling of disgust and dread when I contemplate going to the airport and getting on a plane. I mean, it used to be that you were, you know, a potential terrorist and they got to take, got to take your shoes off. And if your toothpaste has too many ounces, it could be a liquid bomb. They have to rifle through your stuff and your underwear to throw this out and see if you have anything. And, and that was bad enough, but now, you know, now you're also a spreader of disease. You're not just a terrorist, you're a spreader of disease. And now you got to wear this stupid mask, even though people at the restaurant 10 feet from you uh, don't have a mask because they're stuffing their face with a burger that costs 20 bucks and it's worth about five bucks anywhere else, except that you're stuck in the airport. And this is after people, you know, have been, you know, they've had the miracle vaccine. They've had three or four doses of it. And yet they still have to wear a mask or they took a, a test and came up negative the day before and they're not sick. They still got to wear this mask, but the people in the restaurant don't. And the masks are disgusting and they impair your free breathing of the air. And you know, this is an environment where the vaccine does not stop the spread. So they're making you test or show your papers for something that doesn't even stop the spread. It doesn't mitigate the it may they claim it mitigates the uh, severity of the disease, and that's fine if you want to if you want to avail yourself of that, but it doesn't stop the spread. So it's just one degradation over another, and for no reason. I think that's that's the bigger point. It's not the specific pain in the ass of the mask or not being able to put your bag down or whatever. It's the, uh, it's just the arbitrariness of the rules and how everyone's complying. It's just a horrible experience. And, and I don't want to do it, but I got to go back to the States. You know, I'm from the States. I live in Portugal. Uh, the airplane's really the, the only way, practicable way to go. I, I looked at a cruise ship, need a vaccine for that. I wouldn't want to do a cruise anyway. And fuck off with your stupid vax mandates that don't stop the spread. I mean, it's just so beyond stupid that they're kowtowing to these pharmaceutical companies and making laws that make no sense medically or scientifically. But I got to get back to the States. So, uh, and I'm willing to pay the $1,600 each for three tickets round trip for me and my family. But I don't want to do this fucking air travel. I don't want to accede to these senseless measures. And it's just, it's sick. It's just like a person at a bad job that they want to quit. But they say, but what am I going to do? I, I have no other options. I don't want to do this fucking trip. But Heather, understandably, wants she and Sasha to see family. And okay. And I don't want to stay behind myself because we're in an economically and politically volatile time. I don't want to be 6,000 miles from my family if something goes down. I thought about private jet, too expensive, probably 100K, maybe more. Boats are slow and expensive. The cruise is not an option. I was joking with a friend that we need to do that uh, Elon Musk boring company, but do one, you know, transatlantic tunnel under the seafloor. And that might take a couple hundred years to build. I mean, there's other logistical issues. Like what if you get stuck halfway across? Um, I was thinking, you know, there's bathyspheres. The bathysphere is that like uh, it's water pressure resistant, like sphere that you can get in and deal with very high water pressure without dying. It could maybe float you up through a bathysphere if you get stuck, like a parachute. The opposite of a parachute is a bathysphere. It floats you up safely instead of down from the sky. Anyway, that's how far I was taken. I was actually thinking about shit like this. And I don't know what I'm going to do because I, there are all three bad alternatives. I don't want to fucking subject myself to that. I don't want to stay home in this time with, and let my family go. Plus, I want to see people too. It's my country also. And you know, I'm not going to try to convince Heather that it's not important to see her family because it is. So I don't know. All three choices that are apparent to me right now seem really bad. I've got three months to figure it out, but 
it's, it's, it bothers me because I want to re I reject this fucking shit. I reject the terms. I'll pay the overpriced shitty coach seats. That's not the issue. I reject the terms under which I have to travel. It's just wrong. It's, it's just undignified. It's beneath a human being to subject himself to this kind of treatment. I just, I don't fucking consent to it, but I, I just, I don't know what the alternative is. Anyway, I'm working on that. That's one, that's one piece I wrote about, but I'm working on my alternative. Other piece is about NFTs. I don't own any NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And I just thought about them a bunch. You know, NFTs are, are trading as art. You know, little JPEGs are going for a million dollars or whatever, some of the original ones. And the thing about those JPEGs is you can right-click and, you know, take a screenshot of them and save the exact picture, pixel for pixel on your screen. So you got this million-dollar... NFT JPEG. And NFT means it's like a, you know, it's got a unique identifier, a unique public and private key. And that means that you know which one is the original. It can be proved because it's non-fungible. It's, it's got a private key that only that person has um, access to that specifically designated JPEG. But anybody can obviously copy the, the thing pixel for pixel. And so why are people paying so much? Well, they say, well, you know, you can own a Picasso and that's worth millions of dollars and nobody seems to make a big deal of that. It's just a thing you hang on your wall. It's not like, it doesn't let you like go up into outer space or live in it. It's just a painting. So there's no utility from that. Very marginal. It looks nice. Why not a digital version of that? And I think because the difference is the Picasso, if say, say the Picasso is in a museum, it's like an NFT. Anybody can see it. Anybody has the same sort of experience of it that you do. But you can take delivery of the Picasso, put it in your house, and then all of a sudden only you have the Picasso. Whereas with the NFT, anyone could right-click it and have it pixel for pixel. Um, in terms of visual appreciation, it's it makes no difference. The other issue is like you say, well, you know, you can fake a Picasso or whatever. Yeah, but you can't fake it atom for atom. If you could fake a Picasso atom for atom, if you could copy it like 3D print, take a picture, 3D print, and and basically copy it atom for atom, you know, with all the aging and everything else, the exact, if you can match the Picasso atom for atom, I think those Picassos would lose value in short order. They'd probably retain value just from legacy, just from people's memories, the history. If you, through chain of custody, could identify which one was truly the one that Picasso himself painted, I think it would retain value because people know that at one point this was the only one, but as they became replicable atom for atom, I do think that they would lose value eventually as people's memories faded. And I think the NFTs are there now. They're already pixel for pixel, completely duplicable. So I don't see that as being something that's going to long-term have value as a collector's item. So I could be wrong about that, but that's my, my thing. Now, I think the NFT technology, though, is totally different. I looked into it while writing the piece, and I actually got more convinced that it's going to be... Uh, a thing. I think it'll probably end up on the Bitcoin blockchain because the other blockchains are centralized and too risky to store a lot of value on. Somebody could just take it from you. And there's a lot of counterparty risk with the, the other blockchains. But regardless of where it ends up, I think there should be a value on it because an NFT is programmable. So you could have an NFT concert ticket that costs 300 bucks instead of the $300 regular concert ticket. But it could also cost more because you could have a 0.01% stake in the revenue of that band's album or their concert tour. And they can come with all sorts of programmable 
things that make it really cool. Because now think about this, think about the band gave away, say 50% of its uh, concert revenue to the ticket holders, you know, in little increments for each with each ticket through an NFT then those people become a huge marketing arm for the band and the album and everything else because anything that raises revenues and gets more people into the concerts will make them money. So it's kind of a very clever way to eliminate the middleman, the record company who takes a huge cut and does marketing. You could have your fans do the marketing if they're cut in on it. So things like that, I think, are going to happen in the future. I think it makes too much sense. But would you really want to collect the ticket the virtual ticket for the show that had the stock share of the album or the concert in it. And I, I just don't see it. I mean, you, you can see that like a, a t-shirt, a band's t-shirt might make you feel cool or having their songs on your playlist might be cool. There might be some status with that. Just like having an iPhone, people buy an iPhone instead of an Android because it's, you know, it's a status associated or a Mac laptop, but they go to the coffee shop. Oh, he's got a brand new Mac laptop. But does anyone buy Apple stock over Microsoft stock for status reasons or just they just try to pick the one that's going to go up the most? I think that the NFT, the, the private key that allows you to own the NFT uh, is more like a stock. It's more like, oh, well, I'm, I'm buying Apple stock. I'm not buying the actual thing. It's, it's a virtual asset. Um, and again, the NFT, you could actually be a, have an income stream attached to it but I don't see it as a collector's item. Just like I could see someone buying a, you know, using an old ticket stub from the first Beatles show as a valuable collector's item. I'm sure it is. They're still around, but I don't see the receipt that proves that you bought the ticket for the first Beatles show as a collector's item. And I think the private key is more like the receipt. It's proof that you own it. It's not really associated. It's, there's no physical association with the event. I started comparing it to baseball cards. Like you have the 52 Mickey Mantles that are worth, you know, some of them worth a million dollars. And they've had remakes in the 80s and I think in the 90s too. And the remakes have a little value, but not nearly as much as the original. And why? I mean, they look pretty similar. Um, but the originals are from 1952. The cardboard is aged. The card is, you can ascertain that they're from that date. And the card is scarce because the card survived when it's the copies of it didn't. You know, people threw them out. They got worn that it has proof of work, just like Bitcoin has proof of work through electricity. This has proof of work, proof of survival, proof of not being thrown in the garbage by your mom in 1958 or 1965. It's moms who threw untold fortunes of Mickey Mantle 1952 and other stars into the garbage to clean out a closet. But that's why it's a fortune because there's not that many left. The ones that survive have proof of survival. These NFTs are, are even more unique. There's only one of them. You can make one. And it's unique. It's non-fungible. That's what non-fungible means. But there's no proof of work. It's just, it's just decreed original because the code says so, or the company that makes the NFT says it's original. There's no, it hasn't survived over 70 years to sort of prove its work. You know, that's more like a scam to me where it looks unique, but it's artificial uniqueness. And they did this in baseball cards, by the way, in the 90s, after they overprinted for about 10 years, the mid 90s, they started making these insert cards where one out of 500 had a signature, one out of 500 had a piece of jersey on it. And they were really expensive right out of the pack because they were scarce, right? But it was artificial scarcity. It was scarcity because the company just made less and put a, a gimmick on it. Uh, it wasn't scarcity through survival of the decades. 
So I just don't think there was proof of work. We'll see. There's some new ones. There's some exceptions that are really valuable. And there's some, I don't know if there's market manipulation with those. Um, a few rich people can kind of trade it back and forth and kind of get other people in. But it seems like a scam to me. Whereas the 52 mantles or the original Picassos, they don't seem like a scam. So that's my opinion. I'm not investing in any uh, NFTs. I'm sure that if they can run on a secure and reliable platform, which may not be Ethereum or Solana or the popular ones, it may be a Bitcoin second layer, but whatever platform ends up being secure and reliable, I do really think they have a, a huge use case technologically. I just don't see them as a collectible. So that was that article. You guys can disagree with me. I'm not an expert on it. It's my take. And then finally, I guess I'll finish with the, the other article I wrote, which is kind of the deepest article. Basically, I was reading a thing from Terrence McKenna, the, uh, I don't know if he's a philosopher or mystic, maybe he's a mystic is the best way to describe him. And he said something about, I'm probably botching this, but where like aliens, you know, people are like, oh, are there UFOs? Are there aliens? But they may not be the way we think. We imagine like these weird Martians arriving via spaceship, metal spaceship, and come to Earth or fly in the sky and make some weird lights or weird movements that our crafts don't make yet. But he suggests, like, you know, we live in four dimensions, you know, three in space, one in time. And we have like super string theory that has the universe as an 11 dimensional model or 10 dimensional. And so the fact is, like, there could be aliens with us now, but we just don't see them because we only operate. We actually don't even operate in all three dimensions. Our eyesight is, you know, only a small part of the light spectrum and our hearing, obviously dogs can hear things we don't. We, we're just in a very narrow, narrowly tuned part of the spectrum of our five senses and the three dimensions in time. But there could be 10 dimensions that we're not even perceiving. And what if aliens are here, but not in the way we think? Maybe they can communicate with us you know, via consciousness, mind. Um, they're not sending probes and spherical disks across the galaxies, but instead maybe... They planted probes in the surface, psilocybin containing spores of, of mushrooms. If you eat a mushroom and you definitely have a different state of consciousness. Your senses are very different. And so what if the psychoactive mushrooms are, are that's the emissaries of the aliens inviting us to commune with them through the medium of mind rather than physics. And you may think that's plausible. You may not, but that's not the important point. The point is just our ideas are conditioned by our limited experience. So we imagine aliens to be like us, because that's our experience, metal, four dimensions, but they might operate in different dimensions altogether, even dimensions of mind. And it's so outside our paradigm that it's not considered. Just hold that thought that the way we think of things conditions our views. So I moved on to talk about uh, Christianity. Uh, I'm not a Christian. I'm Jewish by birth. I'm not really into organized religion, but I was talking about the myth of Jesus, and everybody probably knows that his mother, Mary, was a virgin when she became pregnant with him, so the legend goes. And so Jesus was, in effect, a human birth without a cause. She was a virgin, so he was, in effect, without a cause. Jesus was, in effect, without a cause in the Immaculate Conception. And then I started talking about Buddhism, because Buddhism has another sort of cause and effect framework where people get reincarnated. Um, over and over again, they take in new incarnations. And the basis for being reincarnated is karmic desire. The, de the deeds and desires of your current life will propel your instantiation in the next life. And this thing is called the wheel. This, this cycle is called the wheel of samsara or suffering. And it keeps going. Your desires and karma, the things you've done, keep with you and giving you the sort of desire to take on more births 
until you become enlightened, in which case you don't need another birth. You, you've sort of gotten out of the cycle of causation. Although there's bodhisattvas, enlightened beings that uh, sometimes choose a birth to help others. In other words, the bodhisattva, the enlightened person has a birth, but without karma, it is again, an effect without a cause. All right. So just table those two things, the two different religions, they both have this concept of cause and effect and the enlightened sort of profits from those religions. One thing that characterizes them is an effect, but no cause. I go on to talk about the book of Revelation. And uh, of course, it's about the end of the world and goes into great detail about trumpets and horns, and plagues and the beast. But just consider that whoever wrote Revelation bound by the symbols and terminology of their times also, just the way we're talking about aliens and metal ships, they were using the the things that were in their experience, they may not actually be literally true. What they were, they, they might not have meant revelation literally. And you know, some of the terms like mark of the beast, what, what do they mean by that? Well, I mean, that's an easy one for now, right? The QR or scannable codes that you need. I mean, it says no one will buy, Revelation says no one will buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And for a while, you couldn't get into restaurants uh, or travel or transact without these scannable codes proving that you were vaccinated. And in China, there's already a social credit score where you basically are having to show your, your digital ID to do anything. And it's easy to see how this expands from you know restaurants or travel to grocery stores to any form of commerce. You need to show your mark. And there's actually in planning now, this is not a conspiracy theory, that central bank digital currency, the US has talked about it, UK has talked about it, it's sort of a digital currency like Bitcoin, but it's centralized. It's the central bank. And it would kind of replace commercial banks because your account would just be with the central bank, the Federal Reserve. And you would just get UBI if you didn't have a job, if technology replaced your job, they give you X amount of credits or dollars or whatever it is uh, every so often. Uh, but then it would be very easy for them to decide what you could do with those dollars because it's all in their system. So if they didn't want you to eat too much steak, they could cut you off from buying steak. You know, this would be you could not buy or sell without the mark. I think it's pretty easy to see how this would work. And it would be, you know, a huge boon to uh, politicians and ruling class. They wanted to implement their preferred policies, right? Because they could, with a click of the mouse, cut you off from your income, cut you off from the internet, cut off your power supply. Everything, your ability to pay for any of these things or acquire any of these things is completely centralized and in a central bank digital currency. And this, again, is not a conspiracy theory. It's it's a fact that they're trying to make these central digital currencies. And even the people making them know that there is a control issue. Some of them are saying this is a risk. And some of them are saying this is beneficial because we can control money laundering, terrorism. That's what they say. But they can control pretty much dissent, who you talk to, who you associate with. That could be if you associate with the wrong person. There's a black mirror on this where your credit score is constantly going up or down based on... Uh, whether your behavior is compliant with uh, desirable behavior. Interestingly, my, one of my favorite books I've ever read, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, foretold of this 140 years ago. There's a section where Ivan, one of the brothers, talks about his vision of a grand inquisitor meeting up with Jesus. And the grand inquisitor basically has the same idea that the World Economic Forum does about future. And here's a quote. He says, too, too well will they know the value of complete submission. And until men know that, they will be unhappy. You remember the uh, own nothing and be happy. Till men know that, they will be unhappy. 
Then we shall give them the quiet, humble happiness of weak creatures such as they are by nature. Oh, we shall persuade them at last not to be proud, for thou, in Jesus, didst lift them up and thereby taught them to be proud. We shall show them that they are weak, that they are only pitiful children, but that childlike happiness is the sweetest of all, he continues. And they will have no secrets from us. We shall allow or forbid them to live with their wives and mistresses, to have or not have children, according to whether they have been obedient or disobedient. And they will submit to us gladly and cheerfully. The most painful secrets of their conscience, all, all they will bring to us, and we shall have an answer for all. And they will be glad to believe our answer, for it will save them from the great anxiety and terrible agony they endure at present in making a free decision for themselves. And all will be happy, all the millions of creatures, except the 100,000 who rule over them. It's Dostoevsky in 1882, voicing the WEF view, the technocrat view, the view of the trust the experts people in the form of the Grand Inquisitor, in contrast to Jesus, who believes that people should be free and make their choice. In, in Revelation, and also in the Brothers Karamazov, there is an alternative, and in Revelation is that Jesus is returning to save all those who reject the mark. It's going to be a ferocious battle. People will die, but you have to embrace him and prevail. And I'm not a uh, organized religion person. So for me, I'm like, okay, well, let's take it symbolically. Let's take it as a myth. What does it mean? Is there going to be a savior coming? Is it the Dalai Lama? I know he's pretty old. Is it some other spiritual figure? Is it a politician? Is it Ron DeSantis? Eh, I doubt it's going to be a politician. Is it an artist? He's going to, you're going to see his work and you're going to, billions will wake up and see the truth. No, I don't think so. I think these are kind of like metal spaceship aliens. You imagine that's how the aliens come. I think we're taking the book way too literally. I don't think the second coming of Jesus is going to be really any of those things that we are familiar with. And I thought, well, what if instead of a, person. It was an idea. So it's not the child of the creator, Jesus. It's a brainchild of a creator like Satoshi, one that liberates humanity. It's an idea. An idea is a brainchild. Liberates humanity from the centrally controlled system to which everyone who wanted to eat or have a home would be enslaved and couldn't be co-opted by powerful forces. Bitcoin is decentralized. So Satoshi, in common with the uh, you know Jesus in, in Christian lore and uh, the Buddha in the uh, or a bodhisattva in, uh, in Buddhism. Satoshi, he released this white paper in 2009. He made some posts, he mined some coins, and then he disappeared. So he left the effect, but removed the cause. You can't go to Satoshi and put a gun to his head and say, shut this down, because there is no cause. So Jesus, the bodhisattvas, and Satoshi all have something that in common. They, are, they left an effect without a cause. There's no one to lean on. It's not controlled. It's peer-to-peer. -peer. People can transact voluntarily, permissionlessly. We can exchange value. We restore the necessary conditions for self-determination, freedom of thought and word, and a creative and spiritual existence. Kind of like the uh, scientific enlightenment three, 300 years ago that separated church from state, uh, which deprived the ruling class to say who went to heaven and who went to hell. And if the ruling class can tell you who goes to hell, you're going to be kind of scared to defy the ruling class. Well, this is similar Bitcoin's going to liberate money from state. It prevents the authorities from saying what you can buy, what you can't buy, who, who you can transact with, who you can't, who, what thoughts and ideas you can express. It's just like separating church from state, but now we have to separate money from state. Put the power back in the hands of the many rather than the few. It's a peaceful opt-out from an otherwise all-powerful system. 
and it cannot be stopped by force. The all-seeing eye of Sauron is not extinguished then by the sword. It just simply runs out of funding as people take their funds and put them into this alternative system. Eye of Sauron runs out of funding, it flickers, and it goes dark. Okay, maybe I'm wrong about this. It's just an idea, but I could be wrong. You know, maybe there really are aliens and they're really going to come in flying saucers and they'll save or kill us. Maybe God himself, maybe revelations will happen literally and the righteous will be saved and the wicked smited. Um, but for me, it's more plausible to uh, just as we can achieve altered states of consciousness by via these weird fungi growing in the ground. Maybe uh, it's just as likely that we can reclaim you know, our, our heritage as free and prosperous people via an uncorruptible ledger of timestamp truth. And I linked in the article to uh, Bitcoin is Time, which is an incredibly deep article, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around that it's basically a clock. And then I ended, the, I ended the piece. I said, you know, for those who hope for God or a benign strongman working on his behalf to save them the old-fashioned way, I'll end this piece with a joke. During a great flood, a man climbs up on the roof of his house to temporary safety. Boat paddles by. Get in, says the man rowing the boat. No thanks, says the man on the roof. God will save me. Man paddles off. Water rises up to the man's neck. Helicopter comes by and a man inside offers his arm to the nearly submerged homeowner. Get in, he yells. The man on the roof says, no thanks, God will save me. Helicopter leaves and the man drowns. When he gets to the afterlife, he confronts God saying, why didn't you save me? And God replies, I sent a boat and a helicopter, but you didn't get in. I think we got to get in the boat and uh, we're in the helicopter at the very least. It's not going to just happen by itself. And uh, I do think that there are large things at stake and these myths and these themes are uh, they're not by accident that people thought of them. Anyway, I'll just leave on that note.